0: I can come here today and not see a green and white flag out there flying like I have on some Sundays. Oh, you... Anyway, just football, right? Just a football game, that's all it is. Of course, uh, this morning you're, you're going to hear my own sharing of my idols in my life. And uh, Anyway, let's talk about more important things. All right, all you Sparty fans, oh, just keep it, keep it good today, okay? <laughs> all right, um, we've been kind of looking at the life of Who? Jacob, yep. Um, and last time was that awesome scene in Jacob's life where God remakes him. Finally comes to that place in Jacob's life. This, this cheater, this deceiver, uh, this kind of this guy who's always got to have it his way. Uh, God renames him. Which in the Bible is the Bible's way of saying he's being remade from the inside out. And the way God does this is he smashes him and cripples him for life. And see, that's how God does it. That's how God has remade me. And how he's in the process of remaking me. That's how he's remaking you. God first needs to break us. Sometimes he needs to wreck us because ultimately he needs to defeat us. And if that hasn't happened to you, I would seriously wonder if you have met with the real God. Now, as we learn too, Jacob is in the process of coming home. He's returned from this faraway country, he's returning to his father. He has shuv or teshuvah. He has repented. And that's what repentance is. Repentance is returning. It's getting our life back on the right path, on God's path. Now listen, when this happens, when we meet with God, when we wrestle with God, when God gives us the new name, when God gets us back on his path, it doesn't mean that we live life happily ever after. We don't. I mean, when I, when I look at the Jacob story, and we're going to be looking at Jacob, uh, Gen- Genesis 35. But I can say this. I bet Jacob just wished that Genesis 34 never happened. And you talk about a catastrophe. I mean, this is a family catastrophe of the worst kind. Jacob's teenage daughter, Dinah, his only daughter, is carelessly out and about. She's outside the protection of her dad and her 11 brothers, and she's raped by the ruler of Shechem. Now, I don't know if you remember the significance of the place of Shechem when we studied Abraham but when Abraham left Haran, when God said to him, Lek, leka, Get up and go. Leave everything for a land that I'm going to show you. Shechem is the first place he comes to when he gets to the land. God appears to him, says, Abraham, you've made it. And it even says in Genesis 12, there at the oak of Shechem. Meaning this city has this pagan shrine And it's filled with pagan worship. And I love what Abraham does. It's right there where he like, boom, plants an altar to the Lord. Right there. But he doesn't stay in Shechem. And I don't think he stays in Shechem for the same reason he doesn't get near Sodom and Gomorrah. Instead, he travels, Abraham travels to Bethel. Now the reason I mention all of this is because... I think we need to ask the question, is Jacob supposed to be in Shechem? Especially when you factor in Genesis 28, 22, when J- Jacob first leaves 20 years before, and he's having that dream at Bethel, this first encounter with God, and God says to him, Jacob, I know you're leaving, you're going to a faraway place, a strange place, but I'm going to be with you, I'm going to go with you, Bethel will go with you. House of God will be with you wherever you go. Jacob says, if you do all these things, God, I will come back to Bethel and I'll give you my life wholeheartedly. Jacob returns. But not all the way. He gets sidetracked in Shechem. For what it's worth, Shechem to Bethel is less than a day's journey. Meaning Jacob, in his return, gets so close, but he gets sidetracked because he's drifting away from God and he's drifting into the world. And I want to say this morning, that can happen so quickly to me. To me. Boom. Just like that. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. My heart's not what it's supposed to be. I'm entangled and I'm entrenched in Shechem. And see, for Jacob, as he gets entrenched there, this family catastrophe only gets worse because two of Jacob's sons are so infuriated with what this ruler of Shechem does to their sister that they, through trickery, go and annihilate all the men of this city. So now their hands are stained with blood. Their sister is stained with some stranger's perversion. And I want to say too, in many ways, this is the world you and I live in. I mean, think about all the things today that might constitute a family catastrophe to even a healthy family. Whether it's the sudden exposure of an extramarital affair. Or a teen pregnancy. Or a DUI of a trusted family member. Or even a phone call from the principal's office. Your kid's on drugs. See, and all these things then can result in, it's time for us to move. Now what I find interesting in the Jacob story is the idea of a family move is not Jacob's idea. It's God's idea. Turn with me to Genesis 35. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Then God said to Jacob, Get up and arise and go to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you. Purify yourselves. Change your clothes. Then come, let us arise and go to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods That they had all the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. And then they set out and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them. So that no one pursued them. And then switching down to uh, verse 16. Then they moved on from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't despair, for you are going to have another son. But as she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named him Ben-Oni. But his father named him Ben-Yamin, or Benjamin. This is God's word. You can be seated. I think Jacob knows exactly what God is asking him to do in verse 1. Jacob, it's time to return all the way. Because I think Jacob is the first one to know that he hasn't given God everything. He hasn't given God his whole heart. He's still holding back. He's still compromised. And it's cost him and his family dearly. Because it always does. Getting entangled in Shechem always results in catastrophe. What I love about this text is Jacob. Because Jacob here is being what a man ought to be. As the spiritual leader of his blood-stained, sin-stained family, Jacob basically says to them, It's time to quit messing around with Shechem the gods of Shechem, and the lifestyle of Shechem, it's time for us as a family to go all the way with God, not be half-hearted, but we're going to be wholehearted. Is that you today? You got one foot here with God, and another foot over here in Shechem? Does he have your whole heart? He gone all the way with God. I love what Jacob does. He does two things here. First, in verse two, he gives up the idols. (laughs) Idols. Should be saying, wait a second. You mean Jacob's family is worshiping idols? (laughs) They have idols. And I know one of the idols that they have. And we didn't look at this story because when Jacob left Laban, Laban comes running after Jacob. Someone stole the family idols. I mean, Laban's like this little kid who, whose toys have been stolen. Give me my idols back. Now you're thinking to yourself, well, what really is an idol? What would constitute an idol in that day? Well, in that day, Idols were these little clay or stone carved figurines. They're only about two inches big. I'd show you one, but most of them are female and quite busty. And so I decided not to. <laughs> but in this particular story that we didn't look at, do you remember who had the idols, the family idols? Rachel. Jacob's one true love. She stole them. She tucked them away in the saddlebags. And then they get entrenched in Shechem. And I'm sure it's there too that they take on all these other idols. Now think about it. For all God's grace and provision in their lives. Still tucked away in the saddlebags. Or in the ears of their earlobes. Or in their noses. Because that's where they put their idols a lot of times. They wore them. Are their idols. And I ask myself. Why is it that Rachel needed so badly to hang on to the idols? And why is it that, that Laban would come flying out there to, to, to get his idols back? Because I find this stuff to be really weird. I mean why would anyone put stock in this, this small little piece of wood or stone or clay? But listen to me. The world in which the Bible was written, first of all, was a polytheistic world. Meaning that in that time, people had an idol or a god for everything. They had the god for prosperity. They had a god for sports. They had a god for pleasure. They had a god for the weather. They had a god for love and romance. They had a god for war. They had a god for fertility. Hmm. I wonder if that's the one that Rachel had. See, because to them, over all these different spheres of life, there's a different God. And see, if you think that sounds backwards, let me tell you something. The ancients understood something that I think we moderns have forgotten. What they could see is that there is a spiritual power behind everything. For instance, money is not just money. Sex is not just sex. A sport is not just a sport. But see, they understood better than we do that the things that we taste and touch and experience and pursue, these things are supercharged with spiritual power. Sex, beauty, career, money, Possessions, comfort, status, food, power, iPhones, friends, boyfriends, girlfriends, pleasure, football games, popularity, homes, cars, vacations. All these things can exercise massive power over a person. They can become gods. And see, for them, the little statue simply identified These different powers. I don't think anyone's carrying around a little statue with them today. But let me ask. Are we any different? What are our idols? See because our hearts. Have been made. To worship. And you and I. Will find something. Someone. To worship. We will. And see, we've talked a lot in this series about idolatry. Idolatry is simply, simply, simply anything that becomes a substitute for God. An idol is anything other than God that we depend on for our long-term happiness, our long-term satisfaction, or our long-term security. It's something other than God that we set our heart on to get our sense of worth and our sense of value. It's something that we love and pursue in place of God. It's anything right now that we can't live without. Because whatever that thing is, that thing has become our life. That's an idol. And see, idolatry for Jacob was his obsession for Rachel. I mean, if I, he, he's thinking to himself, if I could just get Rachel, then everything in my life will be okay. I will be okay. I will be worth something. My life will be worth something. Rachel is my salvation. She's the one who can heal the ache and fill the emptiness of my life. Leah had her idol. Her idol was, remember how she named her kids... Now my husband will see me. Now my husband will notice me. Now my husband will love me. Her idol was her husband's affection. Rachel had her idol. She says to her husband Jacob, give me kids or I die. See, for Rachel, it's if, if I can just have kids, this will make my life worth it. This will make me worth it. This will mean that I'm Okay. And see, this is idolatry. It's when we look to anything other than God to fill the void, to heal that ache, to give us this sense of worth and significance, or long-term satisfaction. This is an idol. And some of you are saying, i glad I don't have that problem. And some of you would be so quick this morning to say, the only God I have in my life is, is Jesus. You know what I say to that? I say it to my own heart. Be careful. Because just because your lips can say today that Jesus is my real God, my real Lord, don't just assume that Jesus right now functions as your real Lord and as your real God. For instance, let me ask a couple of questions right now because I think these questions will dial into what is your real, functional Lord and Savior right now. What preoccupies you? What's the first thing you think about in the morning? What's the last thing on your mind at night? See, William Temple once said this. He said your religion or your worship is what you do with your solitude. I like that. Because what he's saying is, the true God of our heart is what our thoughts effortlessly go to when there's nothing else demanding our attention. So what is it that you enjoy daydreaming about? What is it that occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? I hear that. I'm just like, I have idols all over my life. How would you fill this in? My life has meaning and I have worth only if I have blank in my life. What is it that when you have it, you now feel like your life is meaningful and you're worth something? What is it? How do you spend your money? Jesus said where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How about your time? Or how do you deal with unmet expectations? Or when things don't go your way, how do you respond to that? Is there this over-the-top frustration and anxiety and worry and resentment and bitterness and anger? Or maybe even depression. I'm telling you, those over-the-top emotions will always lead you back. To an idol. Or let me ask this Is there something right now that you desire so much that you're willing to disappoint or hurt others in order to have it? You're willing to hurt your spouse and your kids so you can have the girl. What is it? Or what thing when you get it, oh, now I feel secure. But then you lose it and now I feel insecure. I'm telling you right now when I ask these questions I just see how my life is full of idols. I can tell you some right now and and, and these things, these things may seem small to you. Football. Football. Now, I'm not talking Michigan, Michigan State. Well, maybe I am a little bit. But um, I coach it. My kids play it. It takes up so much time. We watch it. And why am I up at night when, when, when this team, and I just think, oh, it's all about ministry. Rod, you're pouring into these 22, 22 kids, and, and, and then they lose not one week, but two weeks. <laughs> it's an idol. See, I don't care how small it is. I mean, our hearts were made to worship something. New iPhone comes out. It could be Anything. See, and I know some of you right now are thinking, come on, Rod, everyone has an idol. What's the big deal? Do you know what a big deal idols are? In fact, let me hit it from, from this point. I could make the biblical case right now that the problem underneath, underneath all problems... All your problems right now, the problem in your marriage, the problem in your family, the problems in your life, I'll go further than that. Even all the problems in our world right now all go back to idolatry. Idolatry is the sin beneath all sin. Because people are what they are and they do what they do because of what they worship. Meaning, you don't do what you do because of the demon of addiction. It's not your personality type. Oh, I'm just a sanguine or I'm a melancholy. That's why I am what I am and do what I do. I'll even say this. It's not your environment. It's not your home. It's not your parents. It's what you give your heart to. It's what functions right now as your real Lord and Savior. That more than anything else will shape who you are and what you're becoming. It's a massive deal. And see, this is why God makes it very, very clear when he says to his people, people, this is my will for you. It all starts with these words. I am the Lord your God. I am the one who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, and I'll punish the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Jesus says the same thing. Some of us just want to see Jesus as this genteel nice guy. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. You can't serve both God and something else. You can't love God and then love something else. It is either or. It is. I know what you're thinking too right now. It's like, why do I come to this church to hear this kind of stuff? Listen, we can't possibly even fulfill the great commandment, which is Shema Israel, Adonai Elohehu, Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord alone. Love him with everything. Your whole heart. Your whole life. All that you are. And see, that's what this is about for Jacob. Because for Jacob... Verse 2 is not the end goal. The end goal for Jacob is verse 3. Verse 2 says, So Jacob said to his household, to all who are with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have, purify yourselves, and change your clothes. This is not the end goal. Jacob wants to do verse 2 so he can do verse 3, which says, Then come, let us go to Bethel, House of God, where I'll build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, who has been with me wherever I have gone. See, what Jacob is saying is we need to let go of our idols so we can take hold of God. We need to say no to our idols so we can say yes to God. We need to stop loving the things of this world and bowing to the things of this world so that we can bow to him and love him. And see this washing and this changing of the garments. This is so much more than some, something external. Because... The, Hebra- the, the Hebrews operate in terms of pictures. The picture of something external represents something going on internal. So the change of clothes represents the change of a person's heart. And see, therefore, we don't just put off things and throw things out, but we also we put on. We take in Christ. See, if this is just about identifying the idols in our life and getting rid of them and trying to do what's right, we're nothing but good Pharisees. And this is why the New Testament teaches in so many different ways. We're not to just put off the old, but we're to put on and take on the new. We are not just to deny ourselves, but we are to seek him and love him with everything we have. So here's my question. What are we going to do about our idols? That's the question. What's God right now putting his finger on in your life, in your heart? Or is this just going to be another sermon? God is kind of okay today. He actually bored me quite a bit. He's all right. Is that what we do here? We just come here to hear sermons? What are we going to do about our idols? Are we going to have the courage and the guts of a Jacob? To identify them and to gather them and to bury them. Are we going to be tired of being half-hearted? I'm telling you, this has always been the question. See, because when I read the Old Testament, I... I, I I find myself getting really frustrated with God's people. I don't know if you read the Old Testament do the same thing. Because I think to myself, why can't these guys just get it right? I mean, why can't they love God with their whole heart? Why are they always succumbing to idols? But then in honesty, I have to ask myself, but am I any different? In fact, when you read the Old Testament, you see that they never stopped worshiping Yahweh. They still continue to worship him. They still continue to go to temple. They still continue to practice this, the feast. But what they do is they add this God and this God and this God and this God. And it's always God plus something. And that's where I say, that's That's me. I'm no different. And I'll tell you where this text just punches me right in the face. What's Jacob? Jacob is a man. He is a husband. He's a father. Do you see the kind of spiritual leadership that Jacob is providing his family I mean, this is maybe the first time in his whole life where where Jacob leads like this. And here he is as the spiritual leader of his family. He's calling his family to bring into open all their false gods. He says, let's go get them. Let's get all of them. Let's bring them to the dining room table. Let's put them in a bag. Let's bury them under a tree. So we can seek him. And love him with all our heart. Fathers, listen to me. This is your responsibility. This is your responsibility. As the leader, the spiritual leader of your family, it's your responsibility that all the false gods, all the family gods, would be identified and removed. Here's the question, dads. It's coming right at me. Do we have the guts of Jacob to do this? To lead this way? To be like Abraham who can even take what's most precious to him and just put it on the altar? See, when families are sold out to God in this way. I have one word for what will we, what will happen. Revival. I'm not talking about revival where everybody's getting all emotional and singing songs and doing weird things. I'm talking about stuff that happens on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday outside of this where the rubber meets the road. Giving it up so we can seek him with all our hearts and I'll tell you what more than ever I feel like our families need dads like this our schools our workplace our churches this generation coming up they're just crying out for men for dads Who want to see personal revival going on in their own lives. And I'll tell you what. I think there's so much at stake here. Not just for dads. Not just for families. There's so much at stake for every person in this room. I mean, there's so many different places I could take you. But Jeremiah 2 is one of those places. I mean... The start of Jeremiah 2, God's reminding his people, do you remember our honeymoon? Do you remember our time in the desert when we were lovers? We were just young lovers. What happened? And then God says this, I'll tell you what happened. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became... Worthless themselves. <laughs> See, that's the deal. Not only are our idols completely worthless, but as we hitch our heart to the worthlessness of the worthless idol, our lives become worthless. Worthless. Why do so many people today feel worthless? Why do they feel like their life is worthless? Why do so many people feel weightless and hollow? Like a little wind could just blow them away. I'm telling you, you hit your heart though. Wholeheartedly to God. And your life will not only be worth it you will not only be worth it, but kavod, the weight of glory, will be your life. You'll live a weighty life, a glorious life. In fact, do you see the fresh work of God in Jacob's life? No, you probably don't, because we didn't read these verses. But in verse 9, it says, God appears to him. That means Jacob sees God face to face. Who does he see? What does he see? Oh, I saw you before. I wrestled you. (laughs) He saw him. And God's talking to him. Verse 10, God again gives Jacob his new name. And remember, this new name is not just a new label that's put on Jacob. But the new name symbolizes that God's changed him at the core. And then verses 11 and 12, God blesses Jacob with the same blessing that God gave to his grandpa Abraham. Meaning, this, the God of the universe who made everything is bending the knee to Jacob. See, now, you know what I wish I could say? <laughs> In light of all this, Jacob. And his family lived happily ever after. The end. But I'll tell you right now, there is no happily ever after. Is there? Tell me I'm wrong right now. Tell me what planet are you living on, Rod? Because there is a happily ever after. In this world. In this life. Is there really? Doesn't happen to Jacob. In fact not only does it not end that way. But all of a sudden instead of his life getting really easy. It gets really difficult. Because in the rest of the chapter. In verse 8, 19, and 29. There are three family funerals that follow. And then in verse 22. There's a family disgrace. So now I'm left asking, okay, God, what are you doing here? And yes, while God is blessing Jacob, and through Jacob and his family, God is going to bless all the families of the earth, I'll tell you what God is doing. Because God wants to do so much more than work his blessing and his grace into Jacob and out of Jacob. God wants Jacob. He wants his heart. He wants Jacob's total allegiance. Just like he wants yours. And I'll tell you what. In this chapter, we see wholehearted. We see what wholehearted looks like. We see what surrender and submission to God look like. Right here in chapter 35. And I'll tell you what, there's a lot of scenes in Jacob's life that, that, that are very moving to me. I mean, one of my favorites, of course, is Jacob just limping. Blood, sweat, and tears, and the sun rising. I love that scene. And there he limps through his family, and he's the first one to meet Esau. I love it. But I'll tell you, there is a scene in this chapter that exceeds all the scenes in Jacob's life. Because here in chapter 35, Jacob is cradling his newborn son. And next to him lies the cold body of the wife he loved all these years. See, words can't even begin to express the deep, dark waters that Jacob is in at this moment. This is Jacob's one true love. And Rachel's last words. Name him. Ben-Oni. I mean, here's her dying request. The last thing Jacob hears His one true love say, call him Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. And I put myself in Jacob's shoes this week. And I just thought, man, how tempting this would have been. To honor the dying wish of my wife. But he doesn't. Instead, Jacob calls him Benyamin, Benjamin, which means son of my right hand, son of my blessing. And so then I'm at left asking, okay, Jacob all his life always gets what he wants. Is this Jacob just being the old Jacob, being clever and twisting things and turning things to get his way? But it's not. Because then when you look at verse 21... And we've known for some time that God has renamed him Israel. No longer Jacob, but Israel. And yet, in the whole story, this is the only time where the narrative actually calls him by his new name Israel. And why is this? Because this is the first time when Jacob has truly been Israel. Where he's truly wholehearted. First time. And it's in all his pain, all of his sorrow, where it'd be so easy for him to wallow there. Name him sorrow. Name him sorrow. But Jacob says, nope. I'm going to name him blessing. The son of my right hand. And I'll tell you, Jacob is being very Job-like here. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed, Blessed be his name. And see, if you want to know the rest of the Jacob story, you're going to see now how God uses Benjamin to work out all this blessing and redemption, not just in Jacob, but in Jacob's family. I mean, it's awesome. It's beautiful. But right here, we see the wholeheartedness of Jacob before all of that. Because what Jacob is here in this text, in his suffering and his pain, is he is convinced that God is going to be faithful to him, that God is going to keep his promises, even in this dark, dark place. He's convinced God's going to turn even son of my sorrow into son of my blessing. That's faith, that's wholehearted. Can you say that today? And maybe you're in a dark hour. Can you say today, yes, even this I know God you meant it for good. Romans 8:28, and I don't want to be flippant with this verse, but it's still a real verse in our Bible because in Our story today, we have a real life, real flesh and blood example of Romans 8, 28. Because here is a man who believes even in this situation, God, you're going to work it for good. I know it. I believe it. And Jacob's not being fake. He's not saying this doesn't hurt, that this isn't incredibly painful. But he's saying God still is going to show himself faithful, faithful. Because God keeps his promises. And I don't know about you. But sometimes God has to bring me. To those places of loss. Of deep loss. To show me my false gods. In fact sometimes God has to make me unspeakably sad. To show me where I'm half hearted. To show me the idols that still have a grip on my life. That still hold me back, that keep me from wholehearted loving him and serving him, wanting him, wanting to be like him. And I don't know about you, but I, I, I just wish, like, God, why does it have to be this way? But I know this is the only place where I can clearly see the worthlessness of my worthless idols and see God. God for all that he is. God is the only one who's worth it. And see, really, to be wholehearted like Jacob... Not only do we need to know Romans 8, 28, this assurance that God is for us and that when everything seems so wrong in our life, that God is still working everything for good. He's working everything that all of our Ben Onis, he's working out for Ben for blessing. He's going to do it. You know how we can be sure of this? For the same reason, Paul follows Romans 8, 28 with Romans 8, 32. Where Paul says, God did not spare even his own son, but he delivered him up for us all. How will he not also graciously give us all things? See, what Paul is saying is this this is how we can be absolutely sure of Romans 8 28. Because the God that we place our trust, he gave the son of his right hand to become the son of his sorrow on the cross so that he could keep his promise so that when we see that, he gave everything. He's going to give us graciously everything that we need. God do that. See so often we just ask the what question. What happened? What do I need to know? But why? Why would God do such a thing? Why would God give up the son of his right hand to become the son of his sorrow? Why? For the simple reason He had to have you. He was willing to do anything. He gave up everything to get you. Will you? Will you give it all up to have him? Will you say no so you can say yes? Will you give up worthlessness so you can have the only one that's worth it? That's the question. Let's not leave this as just a sermon. Let's pray. God, you're so good. You're so good, Lord, even in the midst of catastrophes and funerals. I even think this morning, Lord, about how you let a guy here for just the second time who even flew his wife up from South Carolina to be here today. Who lost their 23-year-old to a drug addiction. And God, I just pray you heard the gospel. God, you're willing to do anything. You're willing to give up everything just so you can have us. And God, I just pray today that as you put your finger on things in our hearts and our lives, God, that you would give us the courage of Jacob. We could let go. That we could renounce. That you give us the grace, Lord, to maybe put some things in a hole and to bury it for good. So we can love you, God, with everything.